Try and put yourself in my guest's shoes. Some doctors you know offer you a job at a clinic they're opening. It seems like something that can change your life. Fast forward, it wasn't the life-altering experience you thought it would be. And although something feels off, you figure it's not your business after all. You're not one of the doctors. You just work there. Then one day, you find out your office is flooded with at least 50 DEA agents. Your co-workers have been arrested. Your girlfriend has been arrested. And before you have a chance to think about your next move, DEA agents are surrounding your vehicle. Would you think your life was over? Would all the consequences of all the choices you made up to this point slap you in the face like cold ice water? Or would you simply be in denial? Would you want to go on? thinking about the horrors that await you on the inside of a prison cell? Dan Wise was 35 years old, a then-Florida resident, when he pled guilty in 2014 to conspiracy to distribute drugs for his role in managing a pill pain clinic in Georgia. At the time, he didn't think he'd done anything wrong, but took a plea to avoid the risk of a 20-year prison sentence he'd face if a jury found him guilty. Three days before his sentence started, Wise poured his soul out to a camera and uploaded a 22-minute video to YouTube talking about his crime, his plea deal, and what he was expecting when he got on the inside. I'm not looking forward to going to prison, but at the same time, I'm looking forward to taking the next step to getting this behind me, he said. He invited people to contact him if they had any questions about life in prison. But Dan Wise's story doesn't end there. It could have, but he entered a program that helped reduce his sentence. But what the residential drug abuse program truly taught him was accountability. Today, Dan Wise is a federal prison consultant. He owns a company named Federal Prison Time Consultants, helping other people facing federal prison time to have the same success in learning from the experience that he did. And he also helps them achieve federal prison sentence reduction. He also goes by the moniker of RDAP Dan from his popular YouTube channel of the same name and has over 10,000 subscribers. Dan was a lot of fun. His story is a pretty wild one, and the lessons he has to teach are worth the listen alone. We had a lot of fun and some laughs and just a great overall conversation, so I hope one day to have him back to talk a little more. But anyway, I hope you enjoy The Dan Wise with Jay Burke Show. Hello and welcome to the With Jay Burke Show. My name is Jason Burke, and though I'm technically the host of this podcast, it's the guests who truly take top billing. This is a place for curious minds who enjoy civil and sometimes meandering conversation. If you appreciate a few laughs and want to come away with knowledge about subjects that aren't always easy to understand, then you're the person I want listening to this podcast. Today, we're welcoming Dan Wise to the show. Dan, thanks for stopping by today and taking some time with us. Uh, thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, I'm very excited to have you on because I think you have a very interesting story that probably people don't really know about and one that's inspiring as well. 
So uh, I think what I'd like to do is just maybe take a moment and let us know how you got into this line of work. Uh, sure. Uh, so I actually went to federal prison college, uh, which basically means I got <laughs> indicted on a federal conspiracy charge in 2011, along with my girlfriend, Shelly. We worked for a doctor out of Savannah, Georgia, who ended up, uh, he was overprescribing pain medication. So we ended up getting charged with conspiracy to distribute. They uh, said the doctor was prescribed medicine with no legitimate medical purpose. Fought our case from 2011 until 2014, where we finally realized the, the only way through the federal system is uh, taking a plea deal, unless you really want to roll the dice and go to trial. So we took plea deals where I ended up receiving a sentence of 42 months federal prison. She received a sentence of 13 months. Uh, had we not taken plea deals and gone to trial, potentially was facing 15 to 20 years if I'd gone to trial and lost. So it wasn't really a uh, advantageous risk. I mean, did you know what was going on or was it, or maybe you kind of knew and didn't think you would get implemented in anything? Well, and initially when it all kind of started, I was in, so I told you the pain clinic was in uh, Georgia, Savannah, Georgia. <clears throat> the guys that I worked with, Sean, Al, the guys that own the clinic, uh, I met them in South Florida, Boca Raton, Florida. I had a very small, barely staying above water call center where um, I was looking for new office space and I had met Sean. I can't remember how, but Sean had a call center also in Boca Raton where they were doing like mag magazine subscriptions or something of that nature. And they had some additional office space inside their office where they had about 10 or 15 stations already set up and they rented them out. So they rented that section out to me. And in the, uh, I guess we'll call it two months that I was there, I constantly overheard them talking uh, Sean and the financier of the entire building where he was renting this guy, Al, I'm sorry, his name was Lou. Um, they had, they were talking about opening a doctor's office and how there was going to be all this money to be made. And, and I mean, it just sounded like a fantastic opportunity as I wasn't really making much. I was barely paying the overhead and paying reps. So I kind of started asking them, Hey, what is this doctor's office? When are you guys going to open it? You know, is there any opportunity? So I don't know what made them interested in bringing me in because I had no doctor's office experience. I've never worked in a doctor's office. I have no medical experience, no nursing experience. But uh, they said, uh, we think you'd actually be a good fit for the office manager position because there's going to be a lot of prescriptions around. There's going to be a lot of, uh, we're going to have on-site, an on-site dispensary where we'll be handing out the pills. Um, so we need somebody we can trust, somebody that's not going to steal from us, somebody that's not going to take the drugs and get high. And they were like, and to boot, we'll give you $10,000 a month salary. Plus we'll pay for all of your living expenses and you can bring your girlfriend, give her a job. And you can also basically hire your own team. Um, at sign this me point, up. Oh, go ahead. What's that? I said, sign me up. <laughs> yeah, I know. It was kind of, uh, at the time, times were tough. Uh, I yeah. wasn't really paying attention to any of the warning signs. I just kind of went with it. And I didn't really know anything about pill mills at this point. Everybody says, I had you not know. I mean, I grew up in South Florida, but the majority of the people I hung out with, you know, they weren't, they weren't the worst drug that the associates that I knew friends and stuff were doing like marijuana. Yeah. Um, nobody was doing cocaine or anything like that. So prescription pills were something I didn't even understand the pandemic on that. So ultimately took the job, got to Savannah and immediately started to notice like this doesn't seem right because, you know, the office was off of I-95 in a little city right on the outskirts of, of Savannah called Garden City. And 
people were coming from Kentucky, Ohio, Connecticut. They were just coming from so far to see this doctor. And I'm my mind, I'm like, well, why can't they just go to a doctor in their own neighborhood? Yeah. There was always excuses that the company would say. And but you would see the type of people coming and going in and out of the pain clinic. And it, it was the suspicion was definitely there. Now I will tell you, and you know, there's people out there that will say no, 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 but yes, yes, yes. We really did take every precaution to to cover our butts legal uh, legal wise. Um, every prescription or every patient that came through the door had an MRI and a prescription history that we verified. So, like if you came through the door and we want to see your MRI showing that you had something wrong with you within I forgot if it was twelve or twenty four months, but let's say you had an MRI done out of a you know Florida MRI clinic. We would actually contact the Florida MRI clinic, send down a patient consent form that you signed that would allow them to uh, release your medical records to make sure that it's really your MRI and that it wasn't doctor shop, dates weren't changed, and then we'd verify your prescription history. So these patients had been getting these types of prescriptions for the last you know, six months, 18 months, two years, three years, whatever it was. So I wasn't really sure when they came in and said that we were writing, um, prescri- well, the doctor was writing prescriptions for illegitimate purposes. You know, I didn't, to me, I wanted to fight it because I was like, well, these, we, everybody that came through the door had an MRI, you know, if if they want to change the laws, change the law, but we were within the scope of the law. Really what it was is we were just in the wrong state in a Bible belt area. Um, Granted, it was wrong looking back at it, you know, legally is one thing, but, you know, morally I have a lot of remorse for what I did because, uh, you know, even though I wasn't the one writing the prescriptions, I wasn't the one handling any of that. I still contributed to narcotics selling, you know, calls legalized drug dealers, um, putting drugs out onto the street that could have, you know, harmed families, little kids could have gotten them, parents could have OD'd and, you know, it's been out all night. So there was many horrible things that came from my, my just working there that uh, I didn't see at the time or I didn't pay attention to. Well, you're probably sitting there thinking that this is just the way it works in this type of industry, having no experience from that before, I would think. I know I might be that way, but I, I I guess I'm making a point because I think it's important to bring up. You weren't doing anything that was, let's say, you weren't sitting there willingly duping people into this, so and you still got caught up in it. So it, it's important to know, I think, that right. if you, you see know, there, something wrong, like or you think something's wrong, you still can get caught up in the net. Well, I should have known things were really wrong when I got there and they never paid me what I was, what I was promised to get paid. I think the most I ever made there in a week, um, I think the last two weeks I was there before it got shut down, before the feds came, <clears throat> I think I made about a thousand dollars a week prior to that. When I first, the first few weeks, it was like uh, maybe 300 bucks and it was like 500 bucks and it was 700 bucks, you know, and, and it was just nothing about this was worth it. Um, they asked me if I had any experience in marketing and when I hear marketing, I think of like Google AdWords and, you know, PPC, things like that. And I was like, Oh yeah, I've got a lot of experience in in marketing. Well, great. Before we open the clinic about three weeks before we open, we need to generate business. So when we open, we have patients at the door. So I'm, I'm thinking they want me to start creating like Google AdWords and things like that. Like, no, 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 we need more boots on the ground. I was like, what do you want me to do? So they, they had a few of us, it was me, uh, like three or four other guys. They rented us the car, bought us walkie talkies. They would give us destinations of, of other really, really busy pain clinics that were in Florida um, because they knew most people coming to the Florida pain clinics were coming from like Kentucky and Ohio, places that were way north 
of, of Georgia. <clears throat> so the goal was just to go to all these other pain clinics and kind of rent a hotel across the street from the pain clinics. Somebody would sit in the hotel and watch cars pull into the parking lot with binoculars. And when they'd see a car pull in with an out-of-state license plate, they would send me or somebody else down to go either kind of approach them while they were in the clinic in line or wait till they would pull out in the car. And then we would chase them and flag them down and basically run them off the road, run up to their window and say, Hey, next time you're going to go refill your in 30 days. When you go to refill your prescription, instead of driving all the way to Florida, we've got a place that just opened in Savannah, Georgia, right off I-95. It'd save you, you know, three or four hour trip. And then they had us kind of marketing to build a book of business. So when we opened our doors and it worked, I mean, day one, we opened there was, you know, a line of people outside that were all from handing out the cards. So there, there was a lot of, you know, it was fun. It was kind of like when your kids playing games or something yeah. like that, it was, there was a definitely like an intense, like an adrenaline rush off of it, but just every hair on my neck stood up. There was just something about it. And I was just too, too stupid to say no at that point. Um, I was really just, I, I wanted to make the money. And yeah. that was really my only priority. And I didn't really care much about what happened to anybody else. And ultimately, you know, I, I paid a price for it that sent me and my fiance to prison for a period of time, which, you know, retrospect ended up being one of the best things that have happened to me. But, uh, but there's, there's definitely no escaping that I didn't have some idea that something was going on. I just didn't really know exactly what, but it, something was wrong. So then when you get arrested for something like this, or you get called in, how, how does that work? Do they come to your house or they raid the clinic? Yeah, man, that was, uh, whew, gosh, never forget that morning. So before they raided it, the, the office I was working out of Savannah, the owners decided they wanted almost immediately after opening in Savannah, they were like, Hey, we want to open another location in Atlanta. So they found an office in Atlanta that was already a pain clinic. They just wanted to go in and kind of like turn it over to their own, you know, day-to-day operations and their own staff and the way they do things. So they sent me down there to train the individuals that were there to do things the way we were doing it. And I was there maybe, maybe a week at this point. And every morning when I would go into the office in Atlanta, I would call Shelly on my way to work. Uh, Shelly is my girlfriend who was the uh, receptionist, the one in Savannah. So we would hop on a call and talk on the phone in the morning, kind of just like, Hey, how's your morning? All that, you know, lovey dovey shit. And this morning she didn't answer her phone. So I called my friend who I also got a job there and he wasn't answering his phones. Um, And then I get a call from Sean. Sean was one of the owners and Sean's like, Hey, have you heard from Costa or Shelly? Those my girlfriend and my friend. And I was like, no, he said, well, I tried to log into the cameras because we had, they had an IP system where you could, you know, internet login. And you couldn't log into the camera. So I tried to log into the cameras and cameras were down. So couldn't figure what was going on. So I'm like, you know what? I'm going to call. There's a little, a little restaurant right next door. to was called Fatso's Burgers. And this guy, Tony owned it. Really nice guy. So I called Tony and he answered the phone and I was like, Hey, this is Dan from next door. And he's like, dude, where are you? I was like, what do you mean? There's like 500 agents out here. He was exaggerating, but there was probably like 50. Yeah. It's like, there's 500 agents out here and they're looking for you. And I was like, what are you talking about? They're looking for me. So I'm freaking out. Don't know what to do. Um, I go back to the hotel. I pack up my stuff. Uh, I get in the car and I call. I'm calling Shelly, calling Shelly, calling Shelly. She's not answering. Finally, she answers. And she's like, where are you? Her voice sounds weird. I was like, what do you mean? Where am I? You know, like it just something sounded weird. And I could tell something was up. And all of a sudden she just goes, they're making me say this. They're making me say this. And they take the phone from her. The, the, oh, the feds were with her, the DEA. 
And this guy, Doug Kong gets on the phone. And he's like, Hey bud, this is a uh, Doug Kong with the DA he goes, don't worry. Everything's fine. Shelly's fine, but we do need to talk to you. Where are you at right now? I said, well, I'm in Atlanta. Uh, I can be there in the morning. Cause it was already like, you know, two or th- two or three in the afternoon. I'd already gotten my stuff. I was already in getting ready to get in the car. And I said to myself, shit, everything's going down. My last paycheck, there's no way. I think I didn't cash my paycheck the week before that yet. And it was Friday. I just got my next paycheck. So I had two paycheks. And I'm like, there's no way these paychecks are gonna clear. Yeah. I went back to the I went back to the office in Atlanta, like a dum-dum. And I go in and I take the money, I take all the money out of the safe. My plan was just to bring it all back to uh to Savannah. And, you know, minus my, I was going to take my paycheck. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. And probably Shelly's too. And maybe even my buddy, Constantine, probably take everybody's money. So they yeah. had it. But uh, when I got in the car, after I got all the money, I got in the car and I was in a, I remember I was driving a red convertible um, Camaro and the top was down and I hear a, a little tap kind of like on the door from behind. I looked to my left and I see this guy just with pork chops, like Elvis Presley pork chops coming down the side of his face. He's like, Dan. And he looks at me like he knows me. And I'm just for a moment, I'm like, oh, this must be a patient that recognized me. As soon as I said, yes, it was get out of the car, get out of the car. And D agents kind of swarmed around me, threw me out of the car. It was a big deal. They weren't the DE agents assigned to me. They were just on location from that area of Savannah sent them. So they didn't know what it was about. Nothing. Um, Yeah, I got arrested that way. That morning, they went to the house where everybody was living at, me and Shelly, where, where we lived, and obviously wasn't there. So they got Shelly that morning, and they brought her to the pain clinic like a normal day. They uh, they still wanted to open up the doors. They arrested the doctor early in the morning, but they wanted to get all the patients as well, because I think they figured the patients would make great uh, testifying witnesses mm-hmm. in case anybody wanted to go to trial. So the, <laughs> the DEA agents, one of the women didn't have anywhere to hide her gun. So she puts her gun in Shelly's purse and makes Shelly carry the purse into the pain clinic. They open the doors. They let all the patients in. As soon as all the patients came in, they locked the doors behind them and they, you know, sprung, Hey, everybody don't move. You're under potentially under arrest or whatever they told them. And, uh, you know, they scared a lot of patients into, there, there were so many lies that came out in the whole thing. Like the, what, what patients were saying about us. And you could tell it was information that they'd been fed. Yeah. Um, Bank tellers, because we'd have to make, I, I was one of the ones that would make the daily deposits every day. And I'm neurotic when it comes to when you, when I go to work, I'd get dressed up looking sharp, you know, no wrinkles, nothing like that. And um, the bank teller was like, I knew something was wrong because when he came in, his hair was always disheveled. His clothes weren't ironed. And like, first off, I have no hair. My clothes were ironed every day. It's just crazy what people will say. But uh, yeah, that's kind of how it all initially went down. There was another raid about two years later because we fought our case and, and, and then they came down on us again on a, on another indictment. But uh, yeah, that's that's kind of how it all got found out right before my daughter's birthday, May of 2011. That is wild. So now at this point, right, that was 2011. You're fighting it for a few years. Yep. You're 35 and you plead guilty in 2014. And then three days before your sentence is about to start, you got a camera and you upload No, no, it. three days. I'd already been sentenced. Oh, I was I'm given sorry. what's called I was given what's called self-surrender. So three uh, days before I self-surrendered to prison, I was already sentenced to 42 months at this point. Okay. Three days before I turned myself into the actual prison, I posted the video that you're referring right. to. Right. Okay. I guess that became kind of a big deal. I did read a quote and it says, I'm not looking forward to going to prison, but at the same time, I'm looking forward to taking the next step to getting this behind me. Yeah, you know. It's kind of like a common 
shared uh, belief and a feeling. Anybody that's been through this, and uh, when I say through this, the pre-trial phase, the pre-trial phase is kind of like call it bond when you're out on bond. So I got in trouble in 2011, didn't go away until 2014. That entire period of time, um, not knowing what's next, the fear of, you know, you're, at one point I was looking at like 20 years. Uh, every time my phone would ring from a 912 area code, which was, you know, uh, Savannah, Georgia area, my heart would drop. Whenever my attorney would call, my heart would drop. Um, it, it just, it was, there was just so many emotions going through our mind and nobody took a plea deal for a long time. And that's why the case went so long. Um, I, I was the last one in the list of like, I think it was, there was either nine of us or 13 of us. I, they didn't indict every single person, but we'll call it nine people out of everybody. I was the last one to take a plea deal because we thought we were all going to trial (laughs) about a week before court to go to trial. My attorney calls me. He's like, Hey, uh, Mr. Wise, we need to change our game plan. I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, everybody on your case will is taking plea deals. And some of them are already signed them. And if whoever goes to trial, part of the individual's plea deals, whoever goes to trial, those individuals are going to testify and say that you were where that you knew that this was an illegitimate operation, that this was just for the purpose of getting drugs out on the street, that you knew about everything that was happening. And uh, I still did. I was like, well, I'm not going. I was just in denial. I was like, I'm not going to prison. There's no way I'm going to prison. Um, but he was able to break it down to me by this point that he goes, look, you know, if, if, if you go to trial and lose, which you will, cause everybody else is take a plea deal, you know, you're going to get the high end of the guidelines and it, it could be a life sentence on the guideline range that you're in. He goes, if you don't take this plea deal is, you know, you're not going to have a life after this. He goes, right now we can kind of, he goes, I know 60 months was how much time with the plea deal. 60 months was the most amount of time they could give me with the plea deal. So he just kept saying, you know, 60 months, five years, good time, things like this. He goes, you'll still have a life. He goes, but if you fight this just out of, you know, not really thinking this through, he goes, this could be, you know, game changing life over life sentence for you. And it was scary. It was a very, very scary, you know, weighing your options and to finally adjust and go, okay, five years doesn't sound that bad. You know, to hear myself say that out loud right now, "Ah, five years isn't that bad. You know, that's, that's a long time. I don't even think I've had a car for five years, you know? (laughs) Did you, um, at that point think even after five years, so I'm trying to picture it. If it happened to me, what I'd be thinking about, and I'd be thinking about, I'd start, you know, obviously I'd be freaking out and anxious and not knowing what to expect because you just, you you only know what you see in in TV yeah. movies related to TV Oz right. and locked up abroad and exactly. rapes and shanks and extortion oh, that's what I thought it was going to be like suicide was heavy in my mind yeah. I thought about killing myself so many times um, just because part of it was just you know boo hoo you know yeah I'm going to go kill myself part of it was just me talking shit in my mind but the other part of it was like man what it, like can I have a life after this? Everything's going to be so different now. Am I yeah. going to be dateable or my kids going to still respect me or am I going to, be able to find a job is, you know, am I going to have a place to live? I didn't have family with money waiting for me when I came out. So just every negative thought you have, you start to awfulize and really just, they consume you and the, the negativity, like it just, it feeds and you just, the more, the more you get freaked out about it, the, the more intense it gets. It just, it's all consuming. Yeah. Everything you just mentioned, that's what went through my mind. If I was in that situation, you know, even if I get out of here, what's going to happen? Am I going to be yeah. able to get a job? Yeah. Am I going to have friends? Is my family going to want to want to have anything to do with me? 
But I guess you I had, found, two, I had two young daughters at the time, so yeah. it was real tough to break that down. Yeah, but but you found a lot of support, I'm assuming, right? From what I gather. Yeah, you know, I my family. Well, I don't really have family. And I have my two daughters, Shelly. Shelly's my family. We've been Shelly and I have been together since you know 2007. Mm-hmm. Um, but the problem is, is is your family, and it, this is exactly what you would experience unless you went unless you were going for something crazy like rape or yeah. child molestation or murder. But if you're going for any like nonviolent crime and you've never been in trouble before, all of your friends and family the whole time are going to be saying, "Oh, you're going to be fine." The judge. The judge is going to see you're a good guy. They don't send people like you to prison. Um, so that's what everybody kept telling me. And a part of me wanted to believe that so bad. And I think a part of me did believe it the entire time up until Shelly got sentenced. Once Shelly got sentenced, that was a that was a, a reality check, like to the extreme, because I felt like been on ice there for a second. Um <laughs> Uh, the reality check because Shelly was the first one to get sentenced on our case. And we were all like, like, right. Like basically we all got sentenced like days apart, but Shelly went first and Shelly was the lowest person on the totem pole. She was the least culpable of everybody. So everybody thought she was getting probation. It was like, Oh, Shelly's going to get probation. Mm-hmm. And when the judge gave her 13 months, the rest of us were like, Oh my God, we're all going to get the electric chair. Like yeah. if they gave that to her the rest of us are screwed. And that's when it became, that's when it became very real to me that I wasn't walking away from this. I was definitely going to prison, you know, and I had to go tell my daughters. Yeah. That must've been, uh, that must've been the hardest thing to do out of everything. Right. Tell you. Yeah. Because, you know, as a father, I'm not going to say as a father, as a parent, you know, you, your job is to protect your children, but they also have a illusion of you that, you know, you're invincible. You don't do any wrong. And, I hadn't really told them much about this from when it started. I told them little bits and pieces just to kind of like, so they had an idea, but I blamed it on the government. I blamed it on this. I blamed it on that. Um, When I knew that it was actually like, fuck, I'm going to prison. And my one daughter lived with me. My oldest daughter, when my, when me and my ex-wife divorced years ago, she decided to move back to New York and both of my daughters went with her initially, but then my younger daughter wanted to move with me. So she was living with me in Florida at this time. And when I had to tell her, there wasn't a lot of time left. So when I told her, she was about, what was she at? Like seven at the time. When I told her, I don't think it really, comp- I don't think she comprehended it. She was yeah. like, can't, like, can't you just say you're sorry? You, you don't, you know, you won't do it again. So, so I told her and she was kind of like, okay, like, I get it. I get it. But then a few days later and then like a week later, and then, you know, when it was time for her to go back to, to New York and she knew I was going to prison. Um, I didn't give her enough time to process. And man, when I say like, she did, she broke down and, you know, begging me not to go and please dad don't go please. You know, and and like a little child's voice, like, like, yeah, it just, it breaks your heart because there's this, you feel so helpless. So knowing that now, you know, how I can use that in my, what I do to help others when I deal with families that have children, I was like, Hey, I know you don't want to tell your kids this. I know you want to shield them from this as best as possible, but your kids are going to process it at their own pace. And you can either tell them now and start the the change of process to get them to open up about it. Or you can wait till either you're just about to go, or you might already be in prison when they break down. And now you got to do it over a payphone yeah. that you have a 15 minute phone call. So pick and choose your, your, your platform of when you want to, dispense this information 
because children carry resentment. This can really, you know, have adverse effects way into the future as it did my own, you know, I yeah. still get, you know, some right hooks and left hooks for my children when, when, uh, when they don't get their way, they'll still kind of throw zingers at me, little yeah. Chinese stars of, well, you went to prison and boom, it's like, ah, yeah. can't use that anymore. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's tough. Yeah. What did you find when you did get to prison? How was it different? Yeah. Uh, so I don't know how much of the story and I'll send you a picture if you want to use it. Did you happen to stumble across the outfit I wore to prison? I didn't know. Oh yeah. You can send story, that over. story time with Dan. Okay. So, <laughs> um, as I now, once I've been, okay, I got sentenced in August of 2014. I didn't have to go until September 23rd of 2014. So I had that period of time. Basically, when the judge sentenced me, and when the judge sentences most nonviolent offenders in the federal system, you don't know where you're going to go right away. So after you get sentenced, your paperwork goes to like a central location where they determine your designation based on like your crime, your age, all that shit. Uh, so the judge said, while we're waiting for your designation, you can go back home and you're going to self-surrender on September 23rd, 2014 by 2 p.m. to whatever location the BOP determines is where you're going to serve your sentence. So they ended up sentencing me or designating me to Coleman Federal Prison, which is like right outside of Ocala in central Florida. Okay. So uh, my friend, Matt, who's been my friend for years, we were always kind of like not troublemakers, but kind of like Dennis the Menace type, just kind of always into weird, funny shit. And he's like, hey, when you self-surrender, you got to do something. You got to make a statement. I was like, oh, oh, okay, what do you got in mind? So where he goes, well, let me think about it. So a few days before it's time to go, he's like, I got it. We're going to go to Party City, which is like your, your local Halloween store. We're going to buy a prison costume, a black and white prison outfit. And you're going to wear that when you self-surrender. And I was <laughs> like, oh, okay. So I went and bought this black and white prison outfit. And uh, I've got pictures of me like standing in front of the prison wearing it. And I wore it. I got, we get to the prison and I, I, I go up to the door where you're, where you check in. And before I can get to the door, there's a perimeter truck that perimeters the, the, the prison to make sure nobody's escaping, no contrabands coming in, just, you know, stuff like that. And he yeah. comes up to me in the truck. He's like, uh, can I help you? I said, yeah, I'm here to sell surrender. And he's like, uh, you're, you're going to go in there dressed like that. And at this point I got my friend sitting here and peer pressures on. I was like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think he chuckled. He said, okay, okay, good luck. And I go knock on the door. The door is called R and D. So I press the button guy comes out and they must've already known from the outside cameras or whatever. Cause he's like, um, I need your ID to verify who I was. He's like, have a seat. So I'm sitting in like this waiting room at this point. It still looks nice. I feel like I'm at a hotel, like in the lobby waiting to get checked in. And my friend's sitting there recording me. And uh, I, and off in the distance, and I swear to God, this is like out of a movie. And it felt like slow motion. Out of the distance, I see the three biggest giants walking my way. It was a captain, a lieutenant, and just some other CO walking in slow motion. You hear chains, ching, 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 yeah. coming down. And as they get about three feet to me, I stand up and I just put my hands out in front of me, like as if you had handcuffs on it, like you got me, coppers. Man, this guy, he looked like Lurch from, uh, from uh, what was that, Munsters or whatever. Yeah. And he snatched me so fast and ripped the, the costume off of me. And grabs the butt of my neck, become a rag doll, and brings me brings me his my ear to his mouth, and he says, "You think this is a fucking game? You think we're your friends?" And then he looks at my friends and he calls them uh, the three letter F word, and he's like, "You 
F words, get out of here, man. I've never, I turned around and I didn't even hear him leave. I just saw the door close and they were poof gone. Um, they brought me back. They drug tested me. He's like, what kind of drugs are you on? Dumb. And I'd never done any drugs other than marijuana in my life. The night before, while I was packing my stuff up, I don't know how they got me to do it, but they got me to try Molly for the very first time in my life. Um, and Molly, it, I felt great. I've never been happier to get ready to go to prison at night. I'm like, oh, I'm going to prison. I'm packing my stuff. This is fun. <laughs> Next day, anybody that's ever done Molly will tell you that the, the, the levels of serotonin in your body just get depleted from the, uh, from the Molly. Yeah. So now I'm sitting here, like I've got Molly in my system, which evidently I didn't know this, but Molly, a lot of the times they use other chemicals to make Molly such as meth, methamphetamines. So they tested me. I tested positive for meth. I tested positive for marijuana, which I knew. And uh, they were very kind of nervous. They thought maybe I was like a severe drug addict or something. So they put me in this special, they sent me to general population, but they put me in a special unit where they monitored me for a couple of days. And then like day two or day three, I hear my name over the loudspeaker, Mr. Wise report or Daniel Wise report to the Lieutenant's office immediately. And everyone looking at me like, damn, what did you do? I was like, I have no fucking idea. I've, I've been sleeping. So I go to the Lieutenant's office and the same big guy looks like Lurch. And I go to shake his hand. I'm not shaking your effing hand. He called me an F word at the three letter F word. I'm not shaking your effing hand. And he, I was like, wow. Okay. So he looks at me. He's like, are you on drugs? I, I said, no, sir. He goes, do you do drugs? I said, no, sir. He goes, you do pills. Don't you? I said, no, sir. I don't do pills. He goes, if you, I know you do pills. There's a good chance. You're going to start sucking the D word. He goes, you're going to start sucking D in here for pills. I know it. And if you get caught, I'm like, I'm like, Oh my God. I no. So I think they wanted to make sure that I wasn't relapsing or going through withdrawals yeah. before, you know, but then after about a week, I think they realized that I, I was not a troublemaker. I just did that. Um, and then the jokes started coming. They, they thought it was funny. They were like, what the hell were you thinking? No one's ever done this before. And I was like, I really don't know what I was thinking. I just, you know, it's, it's shitty enough to have to go through this. And I felt like I could keep control of the humor um, I don't recommend anybody doing it because it could have ended real badly, but yeah. uh, it ended up making for some great stories and all the inmates already knew who I was. Cause like, are you the guy that wore the prison costume man? And <laughs> so it kind of gave me a little notoriety on the compound. So I was yeah. finally like the cool kid in school, yeah. but it's nothing you would uh, suggest a client do, I guess at this point. <laughs> no, no. I almost wanted to chicken out. If I would have been in the car by myself, oh, I yeah. think I would have just walked in in a t-shirt, but my friends were like, Oh man, you went all this way. You got to do it. Yeah. I think they, Peer pressure, guys. Don't give in to peer pressure, kids. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's a wild story. Oh. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the, the, the answer to your original story, sorry, no. I get off track easy here. You asked me what it was like, not anything about what I imagined. Um, the compound was a, so everyone's going, That's because you were in a federal prison. Federal prisons, Everyone thinks federal prisons are better than state prisons. And it only depends if what custody level you're at. So in the feds, you have camps, lows, mediums, penitentiaries. Shelly went to a camp, which is as low as it can go. There's not even a perimeter fence. I went to a low security, which had a perimeter fence. It was kind of scary looking, but there was no violence in there. There was no prison politics. There was no bar cells. There was like, you know, we're not wearing handcuffs. It was a big open uh, if you ever seen Orange is a New Black, if you ever seen yeah. the episodes where they're actually in their like sleeping areas, uh, you'll see it kind of looks like concrete cubicles. So I was in a, uh, a dorm with 150 individuals and they were cubicles and there was either two cubicles or three or I'm sorry, two bunks or two beds to three beds pure, uh, per cubicle. Um, 
we had a half mile track. We had sports. We had softball. We had football. We had handball. We had horseshoes. We had volleyball. We had tennis, basketball, uh, tons of activities to do, tons of classes, tons of fitness. There was a billiard room, a fitness room, um, a TV room, a music room. They had a full soundproof music room with every state of the art piece of equipment you can imagine. So, you know, the worst part about it was friends and family and the thought of where I was going to go the entire time leading up to it. Yeah. Yeah. So you ended up doing how many months again? 42? So out of the 42, I was sentenced to, I ended up serving 13 months and okay. that's because of a program called RDAP, uh, which comes the name, the, the YouTube channel RDAP dam. RDAP is a residential drug abuse program. It's a federal program. It's a five-hour cognitive behavior therapy program that's based on substance abuse. So during uh, when I was going through my like arraignment, getting uh, uh, pleading guilty, and when I met with you as probation, there was a they do like an interview with you and they ask if you have any like drug problems or anything like that. And I said no, but my attorney was like, I, and he took me off the side and he's like, Dan, you told me you smoke weed. I was like, yeah, I smoke like a little bit of weed before bed. He goes, well, make sure you tell him that because there might be a program you qualify for that can knock some time off your sentence. So I was like, okay. So I went back in and said, well, you know, I do smoke weed. Well, when did you start? I don't know, my 20s. When's the last time you smoked? The day I got arrested. Um, so that just that alone qualified me for the RDAP program, which is a 500-hour program. Uh, you're in a special dorm within the prison compound. So you're in a special unit with everybody in that unit is in the program and it's a very, very intense program. I thought it was going to be like, you know, I've never done AA or anything like that, but I imagined it being something where you just kind of sit there and listen and maybe share if you want to, but it's very uh, holding each other accountable. If you, if I see you take a piece of chicken out of the chow hall or vice versa, we're telling on each other. There's it's just very, very intense. A lot of people get kicked out. A lot of people drop out. A lot of people just don't make it through it. But uh, if you graduate, make the program, depending on your length of sentence, you can knock a year off of your sentence. So I knocked a year off of my sentence for that, uh, plus my good time. So in the federal system, you serve 85%. So after that, I got 12 months off in addition for the program. And then they gave me 11 months federal halfway house. So the last 11 months of my sentence was done in a federal halfway house, which is not a like not a, like a drug or alcohol halfway house. It's a reentry halfway house to help you reintegrate back into society, which was kind of a waste of time for me. Really, the only thing that changed was like it went from like one iPhone to the next iPhone. There really wasn't a big drastic change in technology or anything like that. But individuals that are you know down for 10, 15 years, they might need this time to save up money for a place, save up money for you know a car, find a job, whatever it might be. So yeah, that's uh, that was kind of the process. So when did you decide that you were going to help others? Was it while you were in there or after after you got out of prison or you're in the halfway house, what was the, uh, I guess the mechanism that right. clicked in your head? Yeah. So my, my plan in prison was I was going to get out and, and open a call center because uh, sales and that's always been my thing is, is call centers, things of that nature. So when I got out of prison, I was in the halfway house and uh, they finally let me check my email. They have these little like shitty computers in the halfway house. And I checked my email and I see all of these uh, YouTube comment, YouTube comment. I'm like, what is this? That one video I posted before I went three days before I turned myself in had, uh, had got quite a bit. To me, it was a lot of traction. I think at that point it was like, I don't know, 20,000 views maybe, or 30,000 views with you know, maybe 50 comments, but all of the comments were mostly people that were getting ready to go through a very similar situation, not necessarily the same crime, but something similar in the aspect of first time nonviolent type of an individual. 
that were all like, Hey, if you're out, can you tell us, can you answer this? Can you answer that? So while I was in the halfway house working my little job, um, I had this little office job working and I had a bunch of free time every day. I thought it'd be fun to make videos responding to these comments just as a hobby. And I did that for about a month. And then one day I get a call, uh, the, what, what spiked it. There's another prison consultant out there, a guy named Mike Santos. Uh, he's got a company called prison professors. Um, he reached out to me and said, Hey, I saw your, some, I don't know how he saw one of my videos, but he's like, I would love to have you come on my podcast and tell your story a little bit. And uh, so I did that. And then about another week later, I started getting calls from criminal defense attorneys asking me if I'd be interested in, in them hiring me to work with their clients before they go, not so much to prepare for like what prison's going to be like, but what you can do to realize that this isn't the end of the world. How do you mitigate your circumstances? What can you do to get a shorter sentence? How do you qualify for RDAB? What do you tell your kids? Because my whole thing from the beginning on my YouTube channel from when I came home was all about how bad I effed up and taking accountability and what I would have done different if I could do it over again. So they thought it was a good message to work with their with their individuals. And it just slowly kind of birthed into what it is today where I think I, am, I, I want to say I'm probably the, the largest prison consultant in the United States. You know, I don't know if anybody is, is larger. So, you know, I got that to brag about. Yeah. Yeah. So when did this become you said a business? Slowly, yeah. When did it become a business at that point? So I came home 2015, the end of 2015 by mid 2016, I was, I was accepting donations. I didn't know how to charge for this. I didn't know like what services am I going to provide? Um, am I just going to give somebody some information? They're going to pay me for this. So at first I just started telling people, Hey, look, you know, we'll, we'll do a call. And if you find value in the call, here's my PayPal donation. You send me whatever you think is fair. And it would be 50 bucks, hundred bucks, 500 bucks. But then I started kind of uh, seeing where I could lead this to the personal narratives, the character reference letters, prepping for the PSR. So I started hiring other individuals to help me. I hired a life coach. I hired a chemical dependency professional. I hired a professional writer who, who already understood the federal system. They had been doing litigation on, and appeals in the federal sector. So they already understood the difference in what goes through somebody's mind. Like if I said to you, Hey, you're getting ready to go to prison. I need you to write a letter to your judge about your remorse. And we're also going to get a letter from your mom. Well, your letter from your mom would talk about what a good person you are and how you, you always help everybody. And you're a good boy and you made a mistake and please go easy on them. And your story would be kind of the same. It's, it's really just kind of a bunch of watered down glorifying, you know, how good you are of a person. So we, we took a new approach where instead of just having you write your letter, we developed a, a pretty intense questionnaire, online questionnaire that you fill out. And then based on your answers, it goes to our writer and our writer crafts your narrative and your reference letters on your family's behalf based on the information you supply. So between it just slowly developed by 2000, I would say probably the end of 2017, it went from a hobby um, to a, a full-time career. And I think by early 2018, um, I it's, you know, making mid-level six-figure income. Um, everyone's like, oh man, you got lucky. It's like, no, you know, so sure. I had to go through some trenches to figure this out, but yeah. you know, I, I put a lot of hard work and effort into this and my own money and maxing out credit cards. Cause you know, I mean, just making a podcast, it's, oh. it's, it looks like we're just sitting here having a conversation, but then the editing and the prepping and, you know, there's so much more information that goes into it than what people give it credit to. Yeah. And I, I think that really comes from people's inability to own 
and it allows them to it allows them to justify why you're why you're doing it and they're not. They don't want to say, well, it's because I'm a lazy piece of you know what. Yeah. They'd rather say, oh, he got lucky. Uh, there's instead a lot of putting of people in the like that. Though. I, I feel yeah. like that's there's so much jealousy and contempt for people sometimes when they do well. And it's a little off the topic. Yeah, it usually <laughs> comes from a place of they're not doing it right. They yep. always have an excuse for why they're not doing it. And, and it's funny. Why they don't go to the gym. You know? Right. Yeah. Right. When I got sued by uh, one of my competitors, I, I, I can't mention his name. It's part of the lawsuit. But when I got sued, it was a big lawsuit. It was a defamation case. And it was really effing with my like like emotions. And I remember I had to hire a different attorney for that. I remember one day when I was like, oh, he goes, Mr. Wise. He goes, I know this sucks. He goes, but let me tell you something. The guy that's suing you wouldn't be suing you if you weren't a threat. Yeah. And the fact that you're a threat, he goes, yeah, it's your first lawsuit. It means you made it. And I was like, wow, that's really a great way to yeah. look at it. It yeah. made me feel a lot better about spending, you know, a ton of money on an attorney and fighting, fighting this, this BS legal battle. But it, it's right. You know, it's, there's a lot of headaches that come along with this because you can't please everybody. No, no, no. It's funny though. They just, I think that goes into your, I've heard you talk about accountability a lot. The, research i did and some of the podcasts i listened to you on and um i think that's that's really important as far well i mean it's really the only way to to better yourself is to have some kind of accountability right yep. e- even if it is someone else's fault there's there's something you have to yeah take accountable and, to that and that's what i tell people when they're like oh the government's doing this and doing that i'm like look man i'm sure the government's overstretching i'm sure you you probably really don't deserve to go to prison but if you could do it all over again, what would you do different? And when you can find that one thing, hang your hat on that because you allowed the feds in the door and that's where you made the F up. If you can focus on that and quit worrying about all of the consequences after that, because it ultimately is your fault for allowing that mistake to happen. Yeah. Um, and when people get focused on that and they stop worrying about how unfair it is, because all you're doing is spinning your wheels in an area that's not getting anything done. So yeah. we have to stay accountable and action-based and we put people like if you're a doctor we have a lot of doctor and attorney clients a lot and one of the biggest things we do with them is is on the community involvement side because we try to get all of our clients involved in the community not going to like homeless shelters and handing out food not that that's a, a bad or good thing but it's what everybody else is doing so like an attorney we would get the attorney to go back to maybe the school that he graduated from and speak to pre-law students or pre-med students about cautionary tale he goes i was an attorney making big good money i was a uh, MD making very good money. And I chose to make a left instead of a right. And now I lost my license. I'm going to prison. And all of you sitting right now in this classroom, all of you are going to be in a, a, a situation where that opportunity might be presented to you. Just remember right now, this face and those kind of messages really connect with people. And it gets back to the judge more, more than not. And the judge is impressed because not only are you giving back to the community, but you're also potentially stopping somebody from making the same mistake that you made. So it's yeah. kind of like, you know, it's kind of like being Spider-Man. Did you learn that accountability part of it through that program? I did. RDAP? I did through RDAP. What it re-educated me. It was things that I already knew, yeah. but I wasn't applying it to my own life. I was, I was the person that would make excuses. I can't go to the gym today um, or I can't do that. Or I would borrow money from somebody with every intent to pay them back, but then something would come up on my end and I would make sure I ate before I would give it back to the person that lent it to me to begin with. So yeah. it was really checking and your checks and balances, you know, and, and putting myself into a situation where 
I don't want to be that guy anymore. And to create new behaviors and new patterns, it's not an overnight process. You don't just say today, I'm going to do better tomorrow. It's easy to do the right thing when everything's going right. But are you going to do the right thing? I use picking up dog shit as a great example. When you live in a community, it says you got to pick up your dog poop or else we're going to like do the doggy DNA and we're going to come arrest you. Well, when someone's looking, you pick up the dog shit. But when no one's looking, you usually like walk away from it. What do you do when no one's looking? That's kind of the question. And if you're the type of person that doesn't pick up the dog poo when no one's looking, pick up the dog poo. That one little change of habit could spiral. Make your bed in the morning when you get up. Start with there. Put the dirty dishes away before you go to bed. These little tiny mind-changing habits can create a, a whole domino effect in your everyday life because one good behavior usually will trigger endorphins in your brain that make you do something else positive. So it's just starting somewhere. Yeah. No, I agree with that. You know, I went through that probably a few years ago, but you know, it's one of those things that you would just blame other people or you'd say, well, it's this way because uh, they were born into a better family or yep. this or that. But you know, at the end of the day, it's a choice, right? I mean, you, you have, you have the choice every minute of every day to to do something about it or look at it a different way. And it's like you said, mindset. Part of the solution and part of the problem, right? And yeah. We're yeah. seeing it with Elon Musk right now. Yeah. He's got so much money. What's he doing with it? He could have he could have saved the world. It's like, okay, I get it. You don't have forty billion dollars to go buy Twitter, right. but you have five dollars. You could go help out a homeless person tomorrow. How many times are you doing that? It's 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 just we, we like to throw dirt and throw shade in other yeah. people's directions. Yeah, constantly. well, that's a that's a big problem because of social media too. It's so much easier to do that. <laughs> social just, media owns the world, my man. Just, oh my god, I'm in well, Facebook jail like once a month. <laughs> well, I see that too. It's it's like you rag on somebody online, and it's like All you're right, bullying. Well, what are you What are you doing? <laughs> like, what are you doing with yourself? You're ragging yep. on somebody online. You know, it's one thing to have a conversation or say I don't agree with with this or that, but it's another thing to just yeah just troll somebody like you said it goes just back to it, just to get off on it just because you're out you're, you're trying to make yourself feel better with whatever issues you got going on yeah. and all it does is it's still there waiting for you once you're done wasted five six hours sitting there trolling somebody that you're never going to meet right. and now you still got to go deal with your day-to-day -day problems your rent still due in, in the next day yeah, yeah. it's a, i don't know it's just a, there, yep. there's just too many distractions in that sense too to trying to take its accountability that was actually a really good thing about prison. Um, I tell everybody that, you know, my, my experience was overwhelmingly possible. And part of it was the lack of technology. Uh, you ever heard of the term like phantom arm, somebody loses an arm and yes. they still feel like they have it. I had phantom phone for like my first like month there. I would, I would feel my phone vibrate and I'd reach yeah. for it. And, you know, it took a long time to get adjusted to not being connected to being okay with just reading a book or walking the track and not being able to, to like do all these social things, you know, it, it was a very, very, the, the break that it gave me in continuity of uh, being able to kind of like redefine or refine myself. It was really something that I'm like, man, I, my, my psyche and my mindset, uh, my health, my mental health, everything. When I came home from prison, it was, it, it was at a peak that it, I had never achieved before. Um, and you know, it, it, life is, of course, my regular life now is you still have things. I'm not going to do things the way I was doing in prison. I'm not going to work out right. for eight hours a day, but I, I still am able to check myself from time to time and go, okay, you know, you used to tell yourself, oh, you're just getting older. That's why you feel this way. That's why you work this way. And then you went to prison 
and you kind of like reverse time. So maybe just eat a little bit better this week and maybe go for a walk a couple times a week. These little tiny things that I, I do now because I set these, these little bamboo shoots of these seeds, you know, back there in prison, it still carries over into my life today. And uh, if it wasn't for the YouTube channel, doing what I do every day. It's a constant reminder. Every time I talk to somebody going through the situation, it's a constant, it reminds me exactly what I had to go through. And it reminds me that it's so easy to make a mistake whenever things get tough for me. And I, and those little negative thoughts go, oh, I could go do this or go do that. It's a reminder of no, 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 because I would much rather, you know, suffer a little bit and bust my ass a little harder then have everything taken away from me again and have to tell my family and friends and, you know, go disappear and restart my life. Cause it's a complete restart when you, when you go through that process. Yeah. Yeah. How long did it take you to feel like you made it after you got out there? I don't mean make it like oh, I made it, but I mean like, right. I got my life back. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I would say it was about, uh, it was about a year because I felt it right away, but people that knew me, they, they knew the old me they were like, well, how long is this going to last? You know, yeah. this is probably just, you know, the, the, and, and, and for, with, I deserved, I deserved it. And I had to say to myself, well, shit, am, am I, am I going to maintain this or am I going to crash? It wasn't until about a year later. I remember it was actually because of child support. Uh, you know, I've got two daughters. I pay child support to my ex-wife. And there was a lot of times prior to all this happening to prison where I would fall behind in child support and I would have excuses and didn't have the money and this and that. And I remember when I came out and I started making my payments on a regular basis, um, I remember I was talking to her and I think like I had sent the payment. She didn't see it. And she was like, I knew it wasn't going to last. I knew it wasn't going to last. And after about a year, I remember she said, she's like, you know, I, she goes, I would actually be surprised if you didn't make a child support payment. And it was like, wow, (laughs) because she was the one that was always surprised when I did make a payment. So when I saw that, that she saw the differences and the changes in me and growing up and taking my responsibilities serious and putting my obligations in front of, you know, everything else. Um, I think that's when it was like, all right, I think it's okay to give myself a break now and not be so, cause I was in constant fear. I would have nightmares about going back to my life, not going back to prison, but just my life was in such shambles. At one point, there was times where like my electric would get turned off and I have to go outside with a Dremel, cut the meter box and turn it back on um, water or cell phone, you know, and you hear these horror stories where, you know, what's it like to have less than $5 in your bank account, you know, and to be where I am now, I know there's going to be good days and bad days, but it will never be like that again. There will I'll always have means to take care of, of, of financial responsibilities and my family, uh, because I make different life choices now. I don't put myself into those situations. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I got to give you credit too, because that's, that's a part of accountability is not worrying what someone thinks about you. Cause a lot of times I think we, we don't realize we do that. Right. So they're like, Oh, when, when's Dan going to get back to who he was? And then when something goes wrong, it's easy to go, you know what? They're right. I was never that person. And, uh, th- this is just who I am instead of battling through that. And that, that's, that takes a lot of accountability too. Yeah. Yeah, it does. It does. And, and but I give the credit to, um, I mean, I take, look, I, I, I do pat myself on the back. I'm not one of those to be like, oh, you know, I, nobody likes getting compliments. I kind of do. But I also know that uh, I, I know where I'm at in my life now. I know what's important. And when I hear people 
say something, oh, that guy's, you know, that he's a cheater is always a cheater or I'm like, no, people can change. Yeah. I was like, it might be, it might be a harder path for them because they've got more hurdles. They've got to, they've got to not just convince people, but it's not just telling somebody you're going to do it. Once you create a new pattern and do a new, a new way of life for a long enough period, that's, that's who you are now. Um, so you have to be able to shrug that stuff off. And if somebody is saying that about you, it's probably for a reason, you know, if everyone's saying you're a piece of shit, you might be a piece of shit and it's okay, but you can, you don't have to be one forever. You don't have to be, you don't have to be defined by your past choices. You can create a new you if you're willing to put in the work and keep trugging forward, man, one step back, take two steps forward. It's, it's the process is there. It's just, it takes time. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I want to get back a little bit to what your services are and what you offer. It seems like, you know, I'm on your website and there, there's a lot here. Sentence reduction assistance, pre-sentence interview prepping, mindset and success coaching, family support for loved ones. I'm actually very interested. I think that's that's probably a big one, family support for loved ones because they're kind of the forgotten victims of all that, uh, of yep. what happens. I mean, their life is is really turned upside down by – by a, a spouse going to prison, you know, that they're doing things now that they never had to do, or maybe they have to make a paycheck if, if you were the breadwinner or. Yeah. So that, that is a, uh, and you nailed it when you use the word victims um, part, part of the process when we're creating letters, the narratives and the reference letters um, I'll always, it's always a trick question, but I'll ask, I'll, I'll ask the defendant, my client, I'll say, so uh, who, who are the victims in your crime? Sometimes I'll identify like the bank, or sometimes we'll say, oh, there, there's no victim. There was no money loss. And I would say, okay, so when the judge asks you who are the victims, you're going to tell them none. He goes, well, there, there's none. I was like, well, what? you got your wife, you've got your kids. And you you hear this like, or I'll say, is, would, would you ever do anything that would hurt your family? Of course not. Of course not. What do you think you're doing right now? You're getting ready to leave them high and dry. I guarantee you when your wife walked down that aisle and says, I do, she wasn't imagining that the man she loves was going to come out and commit a crime and leave her high and dry where the house they've been living in gets yanked out. He's now got to go figure out how to pay the bills. Um, and granted, a lot of people, oh, she's just living this life. But okay, but that's the life you gave her. So now how do we give these people support? They don't know who to talk to. You know, the the wife of a, a individual or even a husband of an individual going into prison, usually there's embarrassment, there's fear, there's shame. They don't want to, they don't know who to talk to about it. So we've created a community group we do uh, weekly like Zoom sessions where it's just for the friends and families. We'll get on. Some of the individuals have already been there, done that. They're already out and they're in there sharing stories, sharing information that's worked for them. It's really giving people the ability to realize that they're not alone in this process. And unless your husband's going, because there's two kinds of prison wives. There's there's the ones that have like lifers, which is more of a, of a mental health issue. And then there's the ones that like my husband's going to prison for three to five years. He's going to come home. Um, how do we handle this? What do we tell our kids? You know, how do we pay the bills? Where are we going to move to? Who are our friends going to be? You know, so giving them the support and of, of what they can do. And our life coach that we have is amazing. She works with some of them one-on-one. Um, she creates programs for them. They have weekly meetings on the phone. And then after every call, there will be an assignment they'll have to do where, Maybe it's going to go open a checking account and and report back to me. Tell me how it felt being able to discuss your feelings. You don't know what somebody's going to need until you get there, but the family support is huge. Uh, people with kids, you know, even my daughter is engaged into this. My younger daughter, who's going to be, you know, she's 
just turned 20. So she's not young anymore, but um, she gets on the phone and talks to uh, individuals, kids. She'll talk to like their sons and their daughters uh, about what it was like for her, what she wishes I had done different, how, uh, how, when I lied and, and said, I didn't do anything wrong and didn't tell them the truth until I came home, how that really created resentment because when kids would tease her in school and she would, she would defend me. And now hearing after it all that, well, I really did do this. You know, it's like, man, you made me look like a fool. Cause I sat here and defended you and all of my friends. And now you're telling me you really did do it. Uh, so, you know, it, being able to give people the ability to do it the right way the first time without creating more stress than necessary. Uh, it's, it's, it's such a vast world where it's kind of like when you see the hurricane coming into Florida and then all of a sudden they're like, well, it could go this way, this way. And it's got like a million different spaghetti projections. Yeah. That's kind of where this springs off to because there's no cookie cutter platform. That's got to be such an important uh, service, especially for the children. Uh, it's it's got to be so tough for the children who have to go to school and, and face that yeah. too. Yeah, I can't even imagine that. Yeah, it's tough, man. And but it's 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 easier than you would think because once the cat is out of the bag and you make it not a taboo subject, like we have some of our clients we work with who are like we we always recommend like a. Tuesday family pizza night where maybe you order pizza, you go out to a pizza restaurant and you let the family know the wife, the kids, whoever, that this is, this is the safe ground. Any question, do you want to ask me what I'm thinking? You know, cause a lot of times the wives, they're like, well, he's already going through so much. I don't want to put any more on him. It's like, no, 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 no. Dump it on him because at some point he's going to be sitting in prison and you're going to get a phone call from him in prison one day. And he's going to be like, Hey babe, checking in on you. Oh, everything's fine. How's your day? Well, I'm getting ready to go to yoga. Then I'm going to go to track and then I'm going to go to a men's group. Then we're going to go cook and we're going to watch a movie. Meanwhile, you're home taking care of the bills, putting the baby to bed, making sure the car is running. So dump everything on them because in letting them know that, that it's okay, that they don't have to, because that's where resentment comes from. You let it build, build, build. Yeah. So dumping that resentment early on usually will create the long lasting uh, benefits of a much better chance of your relationship, making it through this process. Now you offer this service pre-sentence during the sentence and then post-sentence. So it, it's through the whole process. Yeah. Well, most of our clients hire us early on, like they've been indicted. Maybe they took a plea deal, but they haven't been sentenced or anything like that. That's usually when they, when they hire us, we have individuals that have already been sentenced. Um, and they, there was mistakes that were made that they didn't know their attorney didn't know this. They didn't know that. And now they're trying to, they're trying to over and undo it and, you know, get it so they can get into like programs like RDAP or, get extra time off or extra halfway else, whatever it might be. So we get hired for a lot of services after the fact. I haven't had a whole lot of people hire me once they've come home. Yeah. Um, other than because after you finish your prison sentence, almost everybody in the feds has a federal probation, which is called supervised release, which you have to do as well. It's either going to be like one year, three or five years. Most guys end up being around three years and you can do, you can ask the judge to do an early termination after you've served 15% of it. So uh, our legal expert, Tom Root, who's to be an attorney, he does uh, motion preparation. So we'll get hired by those individuals sometimes just to create a motion to file to early terminate their probation. You, you mentioned that sometimes their attorney doesn't know, I guess, all <laughs> almost the, every time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, is that because a lot of people have a, 
an attorney afforded to them or no no so that's a great that's a great great question and great topic we've yeah. done so many videos on this topic so if we were if we were in the state state side i would say when i say state i mean state yeah. system versus the federal system um the state system you either have a private attorney or you have a public defender well the public defenders in the state side are usually fresh out of school they don't really know what they're doing on the federal side, you either have a private attorney or a federally appointed attorney, but the federally appointed attorneys are usually either private attorneys that have their own practice that take Fed cases because the feds pay them well, or they work directly for the federal defender's office, which are probably the best federal attorneys you can get because they do nothing but federal law. But the common problem with all of them, when I say they don't know, uh, most attorneys will tell you they don't really give you much insight as to what should go in your letter. They might give you some little run of the mill template plug and play because they don't think it really matters. And then when it comes to what's called a pre sentence interview, that interview process is really what determines if you can get into RDAP things of that nature. Most white collar defendants, when they're asked if they have a substance abuse problem, they all say no, because either they're ashamed or psychologically, you just think this could somehow get me in more trouble. So I'm going to yeah. say no. Um, which is common, which I started to say, I want to say no in my own. And my attorney brought me out and he's like, well, you told me you smoke weed. If he hadn't done that, I wouldn't have qualified for RDAP and I wouldn't have gotten that additional year off. So now move forward. Some of these clients, they've already gone through the process and now they're finding out about RDAP. Their attorney told them don't mention it or didn't bring it up to them. And it's not in their paperwork, but they were drinking or they did smoke marijuana on a regular basis or, or, or to that effect. So we have a chemical dependency professional that we work with that will do an interview with them and determine whether or not they believe they had a substance abuse problem. And if they do, we can write a supplementing report that would get sent to the prison to offset the information missing out of the report. doesn't guarantee you're going to get in the program, but I would say about 50% of our clients that go through that process will get into it. Um, but we're very, very, very clear that if you're just doing this to try to get the time off, even if you get in the program, you're going to get kicked out. They're going to sniff you out. And if you get caught, you know, creating documentation and lying to the federal government, there's another prison consulting group. It was called RDAP Law Consultants. They actually got indicted, went to prison for doing exactly that. You would call them up and say, hey, I want to shorten my sentence. Well, we'll get you into RDAP. I don't have a drug problem. That's okay. We'll create the documents of what you need. Go go get on this prescription because it makes your eyes dilated. Show up to prison, dump urine on your lap, take these pills, I mean, that's what these guys were doing. And a bunch of my clients would call me and tell me they spoke to them. So I worked with the feds for about a year on uh, trying to get these guys. And they finally indicted and got sentenced and went to prison. Um, wow. But uh, yeah, there's a lot, a lot of scams out there. <laughs> there's always a scam somewhere. Days are sunny and people are shady in Florida, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you guys are in the news a lot. Right? Yeah. It's usually something bad, like Florida man this, Florida man that. Yeah. <laughs> So do you get a lot of your clients recommended to you from the federal government directly? Um, not from the government, but the, the attorneys, the, the, attorneys the criminal government. defense attorneys. I have probably a dozen attorneys, um, some in Florida, some in New York, some in L.A., that send me business on a regular basis, probably weekly, monthly. And they build it right in because the average federal criminal defense attorney, you know, if you've got a good one, 30, 40, 50 grand, like that's starting so they just build my service fee right in there because our fee can range anywhere from, you know, if you need the minimal bare minimum, $3,500 up to about 10 grand. So when the attorneys build it in, we usually provide the attorney with a little bit of a discount because it makes our job so much easier. We yeah. don't have to do anything. The client's already there waiting for us. 
Um, but then the rest of them find me through my YouTube channel. You know, yeah. that's, that's the only form of marketing I do other than things like this, but I do no paid, paid marketing. Um, I'm a, I come from the lead days back in the days in generating leads. And I always believe there was two types of leads. They're the leads where the individual generated the interest. And then there's like the lead where you'll get a person calling you up going, Hey, do you want more leads? And you're like, well, of course I do. And so then they turn around and sell that lead. Well, you want it at the moment, but that's probably an impulse buy. So I don't want to do anything where somebody's going to hire me and question everyone. Well, are you sure you're legit? Yeah. People watch my channel. By the time they call me and hire me, they're like, Dan, I've been watching your videos for months. I feel like I know you. I can't believe you actually answered the phone. That's probably the biggest thing I hear is I'm like, hello. They're like, um, I'm looking for RDAP Dan. Uh, this is him. Oh, my God. You, you actually you. answer the phone? <laughs> and, you know, to me, it's funny. I've had people send me weird stuff. I've had women send me underwear in the mail. I've had people send me death threats. Um, that's why that's why I use a PO box for mailing addresses. Jeez. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's 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 a weird, you know. What does somebody send you a death threat for? What are you doing? Because we have a, some of our clients are sex offenders. We have sex offender uh, clients. Okay, gotcha. And I get where somebody would say, "No, that's horrible." But you know, if you're really gonna be accountable and practice what you preach. You know, I'm not a judge. I'm not a juror. And I can sit here and say that my crime is better than a guy that went and looked at pictures. And I, I do believe that. Right. But I also am a firm believer that the because the, I've dealt with so many sex offenders now that the majority of them, it's, it's, a, it's a sickness. It's a mental yeah. illness. It's yeah. an addiction problem. But they also all have parents. And a lot of times the parents are the ones that call me. And even yeah. though this guy might've done something monstrous. His mom still loves him. I'm not yeah. going to get this guy out of prison. It's not like he's not going to go. I might be able to offer some, some emotional support to the family and make the family be able to deal with a little bit better. But uh, at the end of the day, it's it, but I, I've gotten some, you know, some horrible, horrible messages. Uh, and you know, it's, it's okay though. I, I get it. Cause when I was in prison, there was a lot of sex offenders where I was at and these guys were just treated a whole different way. I mean, they were the cockroaches yeah. of the cockroaches. So uh, I understand it's, it's just the nature of the world we live in. Um, I just choose not to, I wouldn't be friends with them. I'm not going to go like, hey, let's go share pictures of our kids together. But um, at the same time, I'm going to treat you the same way that I would treat somebody else. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting you say that because the the last um, episode I, I released was about uh, pornography addiction. And the uh, the person on, I could say his name, Joshua Shea, who actually coaches now a lot of people with the addiction. I think had, he did another guy's. Somebody sent me. Uh, he, yes. But he was he the one that uh, was like a 13 year old girl or something or a boy. No, so I don't know the age. I just What's know his name again? Joshua Shea. Yeah, he was he was up in Maine. But what he ended up, up doing was he used to go into chat rooms. But um, I guess he would keep a picture of the file. And one of them ended up being underage. I don't, I don't know what her age was. Yeah, I did find him. I, yeah, I did find him. I'll tell you, when somebody referred him to me to do an interview, when I saw him, I was like, because somebody said he went to prison. I was like, he looks like a sex offender. <laughs> That's so stereotypical. Um, but I'll tell you um, the reason why. So the reason why I reached out to him and I asked him if he wanted to come on my channel. The only thing I had an issue with is, is uh, he's not open enough about it to talk yeah. about it. He kind of talks more about, you know, the, the porn addiction part of it, um, right. which is fine. But the porn addiction, you didn't go to prison for porn addiction. You went to prison for child pornography. And for my channel, that would be yeah, it doesn't. people 
people were connecting to. And he, the fact that he wants to shy away from that kind of, you know, I don't know. I don't want to say too much on, on, on yeah, the show about it, but, no. but yeah, it's uh it's not, not right for my channel, for your perspective, for your, see yeah. my, my, my niche and what I talk about, it's so like fine tuned to is very, very small that it, it's sometimes hard to interview people because uh, it's got it. They've got to be able to relate. Somebody has got to be able to relate to it for what they're going through. Right. And the last thing I'd want to do is, is it's nothing against Joshua. He's probably a great person. person nah, but you know, he was great. A lot of the guys too. that I work with, the sex offenders, they're still in denial. Right. So if Joshua were to give any type of a, well, it was really, if he were to pass any of the blame onto the addiction, then it's giving these other guys going, yep, yeah. I'm not, that's what it is. And, and I need these people to stay in the accountability arena or else they're going to get slaughtered. Well, I will say on the show, I mean, he did take accountability. He did worry about what he did to that person and, and stuff like that. But I understand where you're coming from. Can you send me, I would like to hear that episode. Yeah, I'll, that, I'll send it over yeah. to you. Um, yeah, no, he was, a, he was a really good guy, really smart guy, funny. But I guess what I was saying was when it comes to sexual offenders, you know, there, there's so many different stripes. I mean, it, you, I've seen it in town yeah. where somebody got caught, you know, giving porn to to a 16 year old or 17 year old. You know, yeah. and, and it's like that's just a different level than being right. somebody who's touching. You got kids. hands on. You've got the child yeah. pornography. You've got the ones that are producing the porn. Yeah, and that's- I went to a uh, a speaking conference and and uh, I there was a guy there. He was a sex offender. Very open about about what it, what he had done. And when I listened to his story, it was like, <laughs> I couldn't believe he was publicly sharing it. He basically said that his, his, his you know, gr- grown man married, had a little daughter. His daughter's friend spent the night. Daughter's friend crept, like, slept, woke or whatever, went into their bed and was in between him and her. And he, he you know. Wow. Yeah. And even when it, when it all, he goes, and I tried to say that oh, I thought it was my wife and stuff. And it was like, but it was just like. It's still so shocking to hear that. And even in the industry and the profession I'm in, I don't know if somebody called me up and said, Hey, this is what I'm getting convicted of. Oh, I think I'd have to have the parent call me and yell because I don't, I mean, I'm like, man, I've got daughters, you know? So it's not the easiest topic in the world to, to talk about. And the horrible thing for, for, for individuals that suffer with that is if they want to call, if they want, like, if they know they have an issue and they want to go to a therapist and reach out to a therapist, if they tell a therapist, the therapist is legally obligated to report it to the police. So they don't really even have an outlet to, to share to, which makes it even, uh, so I'm looking straight ahead at a different camera. I keep no, forgetting that's okay. I'm, that's all right. <laughs> I've got my high def camera, which I'm not using. <laughs> now, well, you know, that, that's just a, an interesting topic. Cause I, I don't know, like you said, it's a, if it's a sickness, but is that something that's curable? I don't think so. I don't think so. You know, either. once an addict, always an addict, right? You know, it, you might have been, I may have been clean on heroin for 15 years, but, but you you're always heroin, heroin in front of me. <laughs> what do you do? You know, I think it requires a lot of, of, of work and a lot of maintenance going forward. You know, not just, you know, being on a list. I'm talking like, like, that's why I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, that's it's, that's a tough. One. I, I thank God every day that that it's not what I was challenged with. That's all I can say. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a um, yeah. That's a that's an interesting topic. <laughs> I didn't expect well, way, to, I didn't way to take it to a downside <laughs> of the conversation. <laughs> so, um, well, let's uh, let's touch on 
your mindset and success coaching because you said you have a life coach. It's funny because I see life coaching. I think I found you on Facebook. And it's funny how many life coaches I see now. And I, I don't yeah. know if that's just a new phenomenon because of the way we live. It's, now. You can go out and spend, what, $1,500 or probably even less in some places and, and be certified as a life coach. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the life coaching aspect is – and I don't like to use the person's name because I don't want other people to, to, uh, to poach her and, and take her away from me. Yeah. But the reason it's funny enough <laughs> how she became a life coach years ago, she was a, a sex phone operator. Um, so she had developed the ability to, to communicate with people and kind of like, she's got this way of like mesmerizing you just with her voice. So she studied like words and, and getting into the whole aspect of, of how, what, how, what can you have, how to trigger emotions and evoke responses out of people. And the way she works with our clients is uh, it's through an accountability process to where there's a report generated at the end to kind of show like, like right now, let's say you were going to be one of her clients and she would call you up. There'd be like an hour interview kind of go over like what your struggles are right now. She's got a whole list of things that she'd ask you. Like when you get up in the morning, what's your routine? You go through this whole thing without, without leading you. So you don't try to answer it. You think you're going to, you're trying to think what she's asking for and you're trying to beat the survey, but you just can't. It's designed to really just get honest opinions out of you because right. the same question will get thrown out like 50 different ways. And when she gets a pattern of where you're struggling, then she like one of the things that she does is let's say uh, you're let's say you're an awfulizer. You always find yourself finding the negatives in everything or complaining throughout the day. She'll have you carry around like a uh, you know what a little golf pad is? Yes, like a little, like a little miniature notebook. Yep. That, okay, a little you know carry that around with you, a little pencil with like today's date on it, and every time you have a a negative thought you'll make a tick mark under today's date. You make a little check mark. And when you make that check mark, that check mark is to register a, a, a physical activity that you now need to go do, whether it's um, call somebody to your upline or uh, do some pushups or do something positive. You have to do a positive experience, but it's got to be action-based. And then it, what it does is it breaks the cycle of you having this negative thought and you make the check mark and now you move on to something positive. And what you'll notice is let's say you did it for, for 30 days. Um, you do it today and on day 30, you'll start noting that there's a lot less check marks. So your, your mindset is now changing to not allow yourself to get hung up. You might still have negative thoughts, but you're immediately counteracting it with negative thoughts going to get me nowhere doing this positive activity will so she has a ton of, of information like that. And she kind of caters it towards this, uh, this arena. And she doesn't just do it for the defendants. She, we also have a lot of our defendants, the wives, once the husbands or vice versa, when the, usually it's a husband that goes in our case, but the wives will hire her and, and use her while their husband's in prison to meet with her once a week. And she gives them activities at the end of each week, assignments they got to do. Um, it's, She's been such a game changer to what we've done in my own. That's how I met her was she basically uh, reached out to me several times when I first started doing the consulting. And she's like, I think I could help you with your clients. I just thought she was just some crazy person that had been watching my channel. And um, I really just, cause I get all kinds of weird, you know, solicitations, like blowing her off, blowing her off. What well, was Thanksgiving, 2017, I think. And my phone rings and it's a blocked number. I'm thinking it might be, 
uh, somebody from in prison. I'm like, they're calling me on Thanksgiving. I got to at least, you know, say hi. Yeah. So I answered the phone and she's like, is this Dan? I was like, who is this? She's like, Dan, this is so-and-so. I was like, oh, I, she heard it in my voice. She's like, I know, I know. She's like, give me five minutes. I promise if you don't like what I have to say after five minutes, I'll never bug you again. So she basically said she wanted to um, try out this practice with me. She wanted to do it for no cost for 30 days and see what I thought of it. And man, it was just, it was, it was the best thing I ever could have, could have, uh, could have gave time to because it was a game changer. I would say that's probably one of the biggest things that we have to offer that people don't know because when they hire us initially, just like what you were saying, oh, life coaches here, they pop up out of the woodwork. That's why we try not to use her as a life coach. We try not to use that word because, you know, I don't know. It sounds kind of, it, it sounds cheesy. And we live in a time where everybody is a life coach, but, uh, but she really has kind of like developed a system that truly does help people. If they're willing to put in, you got to put in the work. You know, yeah. If you're not willing to put in the work, it's not going to work. Yeah. You know what? It sounds like, Obviously, there's a cognitive behavioral therapy, and then there's something I want to say it's called somatic psychotherapy, and I think it's it's something that's getting integrated into along with cognitive behavioral therapy. It sounds kind of similar in that sense. It's almost like you're taking stock of if I'm thinking of the right thing here. So hopefully, I won't get burned on this and a million people telling me you don't know what you're talking about <laughs> but uh, it's almost fun sometimes when somebody I know, corrects it's like, you geez, I, and then yeah, other people correct you like they didn't see the first four responses yeah <laughs> but um no it, it's kind of the same thing it's like taking stock of certain things that you do and finding patterns and then how you felt during those patterns in a sense i'm saying it, it, it's almost like a finding your triggers or yeah i i mean i I don't know enough about it to, yeah. I, I know that it works and I know that it's very based on taking control of not, it's not allowing yourself to, you know, it, the, the excuses. Like if, if, if I gave you an assignment and I said, Hey, uh, we're going to wrap up this call by next week. Here's what I need to have you accomplished. And by next week, a you miss your call. And then I reach out to you and you didn't do it. You know, it's, it's, it's like, well, why did you hire us? You know, because if you're yeah. not going to do these basic things, I get it. You don't think it's going to work and that's okay. Just like I took RDAP, I took RDAP just for the time off initially, you know, mm -hmm. but halfway through RDAP, I, I saw the changes that it was making in my life. And it was so eye awakening that I was like, oh my God, you know, when they say like, you know, the pathway to hell is paved with good intentions. Well, it's the opposite too. Sometimes, you know, going in the opposite directions and why you do things, it doesn't matter why you initiated it. The end result is all that matters. And if the end result makes you a better person today than it was yesterday, you know, we try to get people not to focus on, if you're looking at a 30 month sentence, let's focus on tomorrow. What's going to be a goal for tomorrow that's obtainable. And if you hit these short-term goals on a daily, weekly basis, your long-term goals are going to fall in place automatically, but right. you can't just say, when I get out of prison, I want to be, you know, I want to, I want to own a real estate company. Okay. You want to have a real estate company. What do you got to do tomorrow to yeah. work towards that? You're not just going to get out of prison and open up a real estate company. You know, it, there, there, there's steps in between. So getting people to be realistic about whatever their goal is, how do we obtain that goal? What's going to be the, 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 the schematic blueprint to get there? And that's what Jenny breaks down for them. And it some people get really pissed off because 
you're shattering their dreams right in front of them. You're telling them you're not in any mindset to become the person you want to be today if you're not willing to make your bed tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. I tell you, you know, it's funny you were saying how much work it is to to do the podcast. That was something I kind of had to get over is like this podcast might suck <laughs> in the beginning. It might be terrible. I might stumble over my words. Um but finally, I was just like, you know, I'm just going to do it and then see what happens. But it's like the baby steps you're talking about. You're, you're going to have to get through the uncomfortable part to get there. Yeah, I mean, look, we all want to make a ton of money doing what we do. Right. But I don't think – I mean, I can't speak for yourself, but I didn't start doing this because of the money. I was doing yeah. it because it was it was entertaining. It was fun. It was I felt productive from it. And when that when that changes, when it becomes just about now the bottom line – maybe you got to kind of reroute and go, Hey, and take a step back. Yeah. What, what was it about this that I love so much that now I'm, I'm finding myself getting angry every day. How, I had a question for you. How many people ask you when you do a podcast with them before they agree, uh, how many listeners do you have? Oh, I get that. Uh, I get plenty of that. How do you answer that? Cause I, I tell people, I was like, are you just coming on? Because it kind of turns me off. Yeah. It's a big turn. And, and I'm like, well, I will be honest. I have just ignored some people who've done that to me. I've been like, I don't really have time right now because that's how I feel about it. Right. It's like, to me, I'm giving up some time and it's like you said, I'm not doing it. Would I like to make money at this? And I'll like make it some, of, of course, because, but I enjoy doing it. I enjoy that. I'm learning about something now. I had no clue existed or I have no clue how federal prison works. Um, only what I've imagined in my head and what I've seen on TV. So they, that's right. the stuff that kind of gets me high off of this is that I just, I, I like talking to people and I like learning things. And if other people end up picking up some from it, that's going to be fantastic for me. But yeah, when somebody asks me that, I'm like, it's, it, it feels like my time doesn't mean anything to you then. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like, like, oh yeah. yeah. It, it's, it's, you know, everybody thinks whatever it is they're on to talk about that they're the master of the universe yeah. in, in that domain, and and they're the the, the end all be all expert. And even in you know, in my, I got extremely lucky with my industry because of of how next to nobody is out there doing it. There's yeah. there's there's like five of us in the entire world that really do this and maybe a couple of others that nobody's heard of, but it's, you know, if I were to, to go start a regular podcast though, you're competing with, yeah. I like, I don't make money off my podcast. I think I make $300 a month off my YouTube channel. Yeah. The money comes from people hiring me. So it's, it's, I can't say I'm a YouTuber for a living, Yeah. but, uh, but the YouTube part of it is probably what I enjoy doing the most out of, out of everything is the content, you know, yeah. I, after every single video or interview like this, like I'll get off of this and I'm, there will be a natural high floating through my yeah. mind for the next couple of hours that will segue into my day and make the rest of my day better. Yeah. No, I, I, I know what you mean. Cause I get like that, right. I, I have a big, busy schedule and I have kids and they, they all play sports and do things. And right now it's like, it's insane. <laughs> so this but is like a it, break for you. Yeah. <laughs> This is like, just leave me alone. All right. Daddy's working. (laughs) And, um, but when I, when I had to take net, I had a little bit of a backlog, but I took like two weeks off from it, but I was like, I miss doing it. You know, it's like, it just, 
it gets so space. backed up. You yeah, know? yeah, it's just my space. Yeah, and I, yep. I enjoy doing it. And I'm one of those. I'm a curious person anyway, so I'm gonna do deep dives into things. And I'm like, you know, I might as well put it to good use if I'm gonna do that. So that's that's the way. I yeah, no, it. I love. You know, I, I I'll do. I mean, there are some times where I've watched people's stuff, and it wasn't about their their who's like the number of audience listeners they have, but it was their communication style was sometimes I'm like, I wonder if we're going to match. So sometimes I'll yeah. ask if we, can we have a conversation before we go? And there's been times where it's like, I just don't, you know, I, I don't, I don't see this working, but you know, this is, this has been completely comfortable. This has just been like a conversation. Yeah. It's like talking to a client getting ready to hire me. Yeah. I, I try to keep it very conversational uh, and not take it too, too seriously, you know, but yeah, I've had people ask to, to talk to me and it's not a, like for 15 minutes beforehand to see, and it's not really a bad idea because it's like, like, right. I, I never talked to you. I never met you. It could be, we just could not click. And then yeah, yeah. you're like, ah, oh, how do I tell this guy? I don't want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my connection just died. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Gotta go. I quit podcasting this minute. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks Dan. <laughs> but yeah. And you put all this money into equipment and stuff like that. It's yeah. like, it's a hobby. It really is a hobby, yeah. you know? And I'm surprised you don't do video. You've got a good video. What camera are you using there? It's definitely. It's just on my laptop. So I plan to get there. It's just time-wise right now. Is yeah, I'm in the opposite of you. I plan to start making my stuff yeah. in the podcast because I've got you know 500 plus videos. I feel like I could just take all the audio from those videos and turn it into podcasts. Well, yeah. You know, I did, I did one video that actually came out really good. It, it's just – I was amazed, and everybody says this who does a podcast or does video or anything like that. You're, you're amazed at the amount of time you actually have to put it and money that you put into it. So I like to do live, though. I don't. I don't really edit my stuff. Yeah. Um. You streamyard, streamyard. I just boom, go live. Yeah. I've done one or two by myself, and I've had to script it out. At least, so I like can. Uh, it's hard, isn't I it? Because you have to sit there and you. Oh, you hear, up. yeah. Oh my god! You know, I mean? <laughs> you know how many times I've listened to it, and I'd be like, "There was one. What was I saying?" And my wife was laughing. She was like, "Oh, I wish you would just leave that." It was supposed to be like what? five weeks back, but I said five back weeks, and I had no clue. I didn't catch it, <laughs> so I was like putting it out. And I was, I re-listened and I was like, how did I miss that? I had to like re-record it real quick, yeah. try to splice it in there. Um, no, it's hard, you know, cause you start to hear the, um, you know, the silence and then you're like, oh, there's nobody there to yeah. protect me. <laughs> yeah. No, you've got, I, I, you've got, you got a great voice for it. You yeah. aesthetically, no, no weirdness. You got aesthetically a great look. I think you should take it to video too. You never know. Yeah. I'm eventually going to get there. I'm thinking more in the summer, uh, at this okay. point and then I'm going to figure that part out but i just yeah, let me, uh, when you're ready to go video let me know i'll come back do another one yeah i was gonna say if, if i would have not been in the midst of moving if i flipped my camera and everything's still kind of disarray i would have had this recorded just posted on my youtube channel yeah. but um uh, i can yeah. still post on my youtube channel I'll just put something over the over the audio yeah all right well you know there'll be plenty to talk about and i, I had a good time with this one so um yeah, yeah let's definitely do something again in the future sounds uh, good yeah why don't you why don't you plug yourself real quick uh, sure. Where people can find you and and listen. Yep. To you. Uh, so anybody looking to check me out, the best place, best platform is on YouTube under RDAP Dan R D A P D A N. You can go to my website federalprisontime.com. Facebook, just look up RDAP Dan. Uh, pretty much anywhere social media is, just under RDAP Dan. 
All right. Well, thank you again so much. I had a good time. I learned a lot, and uh, I hope everybody else did. Amen. All right. Take it easy. All right, buddy. Talk to you soon. Thanks. Thanks to everyone who took some time out of their day today to listen. The With Jayberg Show is available wherever you find your favorite podcast, or go directly to jaybergshow.podbean.com and subscribe to get the latest episodes. I know it may not always be a straight line, but I hope we'll see you again to take the journey and escape the wild for thoughtful excursions into the world of ideas across politics, technology, pop culture, and all realms of civic life. See you soon.